Look, I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen. AM 1420, WBSM presents Spooky South Coast with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. And we are broadcasting here on WBSM, as well as streaming live on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com. Say hello to everybody in the chat room on Spooky TV who are out there tonight watching the show. And we've got a great show lined up for you because we're going to be diving a little bit further into the Amityville case this is something that we talked about a few a uh, few weeks ago here on Spooky South Coast with Jackie Barrett, and she gave us a lot of inside information from her dealings uh, with uh, Ronald Butch DeFeo, uh, the murderer of the DeFeo family, uh, and we're going to get a little bit more into the story of those murders, uh, what actually took place, what actually went down with our guests Ryan Kassenbach and Alexandra Holzer. Now you know Alexandra as the daughter of Dr. Hans Holzer. We've had her here on the show a few times in the past, to talk about her father's work and carrying on his legacy. And one of the most famous cases that he dealt with was the Amityville case. So we're going to talk with him, uh, I'm sorry, talk with Ryan and, and Alex, not only about the case, but also about uh, Dr. Holzer's work into the case as well. And it's just going to be another one of those shows, I think, where some bombs are dropped, where some uh, interesting information is going to come to light, things that you haven't heard before. Because Ryan is uh, producing a film called Shattered Hopes, the true story of the Amityville murders. And he's been working on this for a number of years. And he's got a number of uh, articles, documents, letters, uh, things that just nobody else has. So we're going to talk with him in just a few minutes. But before we do that, uh, I just want to say thank you to everybody at the South Coast Toy and Comic Show for uh, having me there last weekend. And what a great event that was. If you missed it, definitely pay attention for the next one coming up. I think it was in March. Uh, because it was such a great time. So many vendors there uh, with really cool stuff. I wish I had brought more money with me because there was uh, all kinds of great toys and comics and memorabilia to pick up. And, of course, I uh, got to see our friend Felix Silla again. And uh, <laughs> He's a hot ticket. Boy. He is awesome. He is uh, definitely one of my favorite people in the world now after having met him. And uh, and. Gabby was there, as well as uh, a number of uh, other paranormal people came and hung out, and all of our all of our spooky South Coast friends and family were there. So, uh, that, and I I couldn't believe how much fun there was to be had for a six dollar admission. So, stay tuned because we're going to be promoting the next one here on Spooky South Coast as well, so you'll know when it's coming up. And also, Matt Costa, we we yes. we were at Rock for Christmas last night. I don't know how much of it do you remember. Um, I got about it. Okay, yeah, we didn't drink that much, but uh, it, w- it was a great show. Uh, Pat Travers just completely blew the roof off the CD Rec Center in Fall River. Uh, Corey Glover had a brief set at the oh. end, but he he made sure he he uh, played cult of personality for all the Living Color fans out there, and it looked a little different than uh, than he did in the video. The, uh, the the dreadlocks and the body glove suit had been replaced by. Uh, 
a, a scally cap and an argyle sweater yeah. vest and a shirt and tie. He was quite dapper. <laughs> and I put, uh, for those of you who are friends with, with me on Facebook, I put some pictures up from Rock for Christmas so you can check those out. You can see Wayne Morrison rocking out with uh, Chris Holmes and Seth Howland of Wasp and uh, with Pat Travers and Terry Luce was there. And uh, it was a really, really fun time. And I'm, I'm glad that uh, so many people came out and supported Rock for Christmas, but they still need more help. They still need more support for the charities that they deal with uh, here during the holiday season. So just go to rock4xmas.com. It's rock, then the number four, then xmas.com, and you can find out how you can make a donation. And it doesn't have to be now. It can be year-round. So uh, make sure that you put them on your holiday giving list. All right, well, why don't we take a break? When we come back, we will be joined by Ryan Katzenbach and Alex Holzer, and we will talk about the Amityville case. The phone lines are going to be open all night long, 508-996-0500 or 1-877-996-1420. You can also email us, SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com, and you can jump into the chat room on Spooky TV. So stay tuned. We'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. This looks extraordinarily bad. All right, welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. And uh, we are very excited to talk about tonight's topic. It's something that I've been following uh, for as long as I've been interested in the paranormal. And my wife, who is a true crime buff, follows it on the other side. So it's something that comes up for discussion quite a bit in our family, and that is the Amityville case. And uh, joining us on the line right now, we have Ryan Katzenbach who is the uh, filmmaker behind Shattered Hopes, the true story of the Amityville murders. Uh, he's on the VIP line there, Matt. Good evening, Ryan. How are you doing? Hi, Ryan. Hi, Tim. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Very well, indeed. And we're also going to bring in... Now, Alex is also a producer and a consultant for the film. Well, Alex isn't a producer. Alex is, Alex is one of our interviewees in the film who attests to some of the paranormal things, the investigation that went on by her father. Well, let's bring Alex on right now. Oh, I think we just lost her off, the, off that <laughs> line. Sometimes it happens with our technology. We don't have the, uh, the state-of-the-art stuff that I'm sure you're using to, to make Shattered Hopes. We have... Uh, oh, let's you, would, you would be surprised. You would be surprised. Uh, duct tape and bailing twine has, uh, accounts for a lot of our equipment. <laughs> oh, so you, you have seen our show. <laughs> That's pretty much how we Actually, do it. sounds like he has a higher budget than us. Yeah, yeah, we don't get duct tape. We have to use uh, masking tape. So, uh, but we, well, do... we, get, we get duct tape in lieu of gaffer's tape because they told us the gaffer's tape costs too much. But, yeah, that's it. we get that knockoff stuff that they have at uh, you know the bargain store. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, but it works, whatever works. All right, as well, long as it gets the job done. Absolutely. And also joining us on the line, we have Alexandra Holzer. And you know her from her uh, book, Growing Up Haunted, and from her work following in her father's footsteps, uh, the acclaimed Dr. Hans Holzer. Good evening, Alex. How are you? Peachy Keen, how are you? <laughs> well, we are spooktacular here. Oh, very silly. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Alex. How are you? Oh, long time no speak. How are you? 
I am I am well. I hope you and your family's good. Thank you, honey. Yeah, hanging in there, hanging in there. I was just telling good. Tim before my throat is killing me. Well, we're gonna we're gonna try and make you drag it out as much as you can. Yeah, you're so mean. You we know, are. we're not we're not very uh we're not very considerate for people's illnesses. No, you're not. <laughs> I, but I heard that about you. I don't know. I should have probably not. Have come on! I should have avoided you. You're so evil. Well, the the good thing is though is now uh, once we tear up your throat, then nobody can bother you for a couple of days. Well, that's a good thing. People will thank you for it because they're tired of hearing my mouth. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, we want to hear plenty from you tonight because we're going to uh -huh. be talking about, uh, like I said uh, at the top of the segment here, one one of the the cases that has always fascinated me is the Amityville case, and so much of the stuff that we deal with here on Spooky South Coast is in regards to the paranormal side of it that we almost take for granted the actual true crime case that took place there. And we we just take at face value the facts that were given. And, Ryan, it seems like your film Shattered Hopes is going to get really deep into the story and, and tell us some information we might not have heard before. Well, I, I certainly hope so, and I certainly believe that. Um, for me, I know that I've always felt like the DeFeo case was kind of an afterthought to the Amityville horror. You know, we've always through the years we've we've seen the sequels, we've read the original book, we've we've you know seen a, a countless amount of documentaries on the subject, but it seems like the DeFeo case was almost kind of regarded as an afterthought. It's like the house was haunted, uh, Ronald DeFeo was possessed, he committed this atrocious crime, uh, and by the way, this family was murdered. You know, blah blah blah, and it's kind of inconsequential inconsequential to the to the overall story. And it's really not, because to me, the, the DeFeo story is probably the more terrifying story that, that you haven't heard. And I almost think that from some of the information that you've, uh, at least what's kind of come out a little bit in anticipation of the film, it seems like that could also have a direct effect on some of the paranormal stuff uh, as well. I mean, Alex, your, your father spent a lot of time investigating this case and writing about this case, and... Can you imagine if he had known some of the uh, revelations that, that Ryan will be unveiling, unveiling in this film? Not really, and I think that's the biggest misconception, is I think people say, ooh, CSI versus the paranormal. They can't mix the two. Oh, God, it's going to bubble over and explode. That's not at all um, what it is, and that's why Ryan and I giggle at this, because people don't realize that combining the Holzer um, backstory and putting it with you know Ryan's CSI information, which is going to blow everybody away because, you know, there's just so much stuff that has been buried, so to speak, no pun intended, that people just automatically assume, oh, well, Hans was after the ghosties, and that was it. You know, and it's really frustrating because he was a skeptic and a journalist, first and foremost, in his career, and he was trained that way, and it was the medium he brought in, Ethel um, Johnson Myers at the time, that was his choice medium, he worked with many, to do that part of it, and he kind of delved into the history of the parcel and the town and the people and what happened prior, and that the fact that that house that's there now wasn't the original house on the parcel. And that's why he wrote in those books, but a lot of people either haven't read them or just assume things with him associated as the ghost man. So it was my job to step in, um, which Ryan graciously allowed me to and asked me to kind of clear that up a bit and, and kind of link the two together, which... Um, I always kind of sat on the fence with the whole possession thing because, you know, as much as he was, my father was involved with that part of it and going to jail and visiting um, DeFeo twice when they moved him, that's very creepy, and I can't believe that he did that, but he did. I certainly wouldn't have done that. Well, um, but your, so. your father was also very committed to 
you know, getting as much information on the story as he could. Which had nothing to do with ghosts as far as he was concerned. His his whole thing was he really felt there was something wrong with DeFeo himself, um, you know, and that he never said the house was haunted. It came after the fact when there was the murders taking place. Well, we know that's a Class A haunting. What death, sudden death can create a ghost or two or, you know, multiple, it, you know. So, I mean, he never said it was – the parcel had problems prior to. You can have haunted property. It's not just four walls and a, and a roof, and that was really a lot of what he kind of dealt into and, and the, you know, the town's librarian and, and political people at that time, you know. And Ethel's job was to pick up what happened as, as the aftermath as to what brought about the so-called possession, you know. And so I delve into that with Ryan in the film a bit um, about, you know, kind of like my idea and, and where I sit on that, which is pretty much on the fence and, kind of what Ryan goes into is, and he'll explain it to you, is, is, is really makes you kind of think like, well, let, let's just go back in time because fact is fact. And you can have theory, but when you have fact, you kind of, you know, it, it's almost like you have to look at everything and have an open mind. And The thing that, uh, if, I, if I can interject for just a second. No, and, no, and you the can't. Thing that, the thing that interested me about, about Alex, the, the things that she told me in our interview pertaining to her father, what really made me set up and take notice was when she talked about him going to the town library and, and, and you know, visiting the historical society and going to all these links to do his research on, you know, was there, uh, was there an Indian tribe that inhabited this land? Was there a possibility that there could have been a chief buried on the property, what have you? What, what really interested me the most was that after the story gained the notoriety that it did, was the fact that these documents and this material simply disappeared. And if I know one thing about Suffolk County and about Amityville, that seems to be their M.O. You know, after this case became famous, everybody hushed up, and I certainly believe that, that her father found, that Hans found information that may have suggested that there was uh, an entity buried on the property or something along those lines. But you can't determine it now because that stuff has disappeared off the face of the planet. Well, Ryan, I'm assuming that, uh, you know, just through pop culture, uh, you probably were first introduced to this case the same way we all were by the idea of the Amityville Horror, the idea of this, you know, haunted home that drove a family out in, in less than a month. W was that Absolutely. kind of your – at what point did you become more in, interested in, in the, the murders behind the haunt? Well, I'll give you the whole background. Sure. Um, when I was – when I was very young, we had a rule in, uh, in the house. As long as I got out of bed for school the next morning, I could stay up as late as I wanted. And so being, you know, five, six, seven years old, I never had a, a set bedtime. And my father worked a, a second shift job, and on Friday nights, a lot of times through the week, my mother and I would wait up for him to get home at, at around midnight. And as I said, the only rule we had in the house was that I had to get up. And the first time that I posed the problem not getting out of bed was there, was, there would be a bedtime at that point. And uh, my parents were pretty, uh, I'm, I, I won't say liberal people, but they, you know, I was introduced to a lot of great movies and horror movies and all that stuff. So I grew up, you know, just loving that stuff. So my mom had told me on a particular Friday night, she said, and I was in the first grade, and she said, uh, there's going to be this movie on about this, this haunted house and the events that took place there, and it's a true story, and it really happened. And, of course, I think even from an early age, I think we're always kind of intrigued by true stories. 
you know, if we think, if we're going to see something that seems, well, you know, really sensational, but yet it really happened, you know, that, that really captures your imagination, I think, as a young kid. And so uh, we stayed up and we watched the movie, and I was just enthralled with the house with the eye-like windows, you know. And, um, of course, I wanted to learn more. So I think by the time I was in the second grade, I remember my mother brought the, the Amityville Horror Home from the library, and I, and I read that. And I remember my second grade teacher sent my mom home a note and said something to the effect of, do you think that this is appropriate reading material? <laughs> to which my mom sent a note back and said, as long as my kid is reading at the sixth and se- seventh grade reading proficiency tests, yes, I do believe that it is appropriate reading material. <laughs> so I read the book, and I think around the third or fourth grade, I read uh, Gerard Sullivan's High Hopes. And as a kid, High Hopes didn't really appeal to me a whole lot because it's a very legal book, very dense you know, piece of, of reading material. Mm-hmm. So from there, I kind of lost interest as a kid in the story. And I, I remember, you know, if I saw an article on it or something like that, I would read it. But, you know, you get up to your junior high years and, and you know, you get involved in other things and, and you just kind of forget. So I think it was, I was at the, I was actually running a newsroom at a newspaper and we decided to do, this was when I was like, uh, I want to say maybe 25. And, um, we had been assigned to do this section on Halloween, and the editor wanted both uh, local stories and some national interest stuff. You know, so immediately the idea, as I was looking through the internet, popped up Amityville. You know, I wonder what new research has been done on this. I haven't read anything about it in ten years. You know, what's up? So I find Rick Osuna's website, theamityvillemurders.com. And uh, I, I sent Rick a note via email, and I said, you know, I understand that you're writing a book about the DeSeo case, and I'd like to do an interview with you. I'd like to do a story on you. And little did I realize that I was, I was working for a newspaper around the Fresno, California area at that time, and Rick was actually from the Fresno area, so I had a local tie-in. So we met and we did the story, and I was so intrigued by his book that also running a publishing company that I, I asked him if I could option the rights to his book, and I was very interested in, in trying to, to put together a screenplay adaptation of his book as a film because I had a, another foot in, in Los Angeles in the movie industry. And that's really how I got involved in it. And I have my number one question in this case has always been, you know, how could one person commit this crime alone with a high-powered Marlin hunting rifle walking through a fairly small home? You know, the movies make the Amityville house look like it's this huge, colossal house. It's really not a very big house, you know. It's like uh, roughly 28 foot by 42 foot, you know, in, in size, positioned on a 50-foot wide lot. So how did this happen? And that was kind of the question. That was what uh, Rick's research kind of that he kind of spoke to me on that on that subject, and that is how I got involved. Well, I, and when I was younger and I, uh, you know, knew of the case, I always assumed that, you know, there must have been some sort of, uh, you know, drugs involved that that the family was somehow drugged at dinner or something, and and the, they were put under, and that's why, you know, the sound of gunfire didn't wake one up while he went right. from room to room. But then I find out later that there were, there was nothing found in their systems. Well, exactly. There was nothing found in their systems, and not only that, but they also, you know, the cops that night, they removed uh, pots and pans uh, from the kitchen sink. They removed food from the refrigerator, and all of this material, of course, was tested for the presence of any type of, of sleeping pill or, you know, 
drug of any kind that would have put them under. And uh, according to the medical examiner, who is now deceased, they were absolutely stone-cold sober at the time that the, that the murder took place. Well, and there's there's when when that that just opens up that whole question of uh, of for what reason could that sound not wake another person up? Not only rooms away, but within the same room. Can I make a right. comment? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, only for the simple fact that I go shooting every Sunday and I'm quite familiar with guns. And he's also <laughs> murdered. Oh no! Entire. <laughs> no. He's, he's murdered entire houses of squirrels. Yes, oh, <laughs> squirrels. No. Don't piss them off. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, with firearms, yes, you, you would hear the report of the rifle if it's held a certain distance away. If it's held up close to the body, you would it would be muffled. So it would be plausible to be able to go up with a... Now, you're saying it was a Marlin rifle, correct? Right, it was a thirty-five caliber. Thirty. They don't make a thirty-five caliber. Thirty-two caliber, maybe? No, this one was a thirty-five. It was a thirty-five uh, C, like CS or CR model, or, or excuse me. That's the model of the rifle. Yeah, it was a three thirty-six CR. I do believe was the model number on it, and it was a thirty-five caliber. I've never heard of a thirty-five caliber. As I understand it, it's a fairly rare gun because we went. You know, we had to go locate one, and it took us forever to actually find one for our forensic team to be able to use because they wanted to fire the rifles firsthand to hear what it would sound like. You know, so it took us a considerable amount of time. But yes, there there is a thirty-five Marlin. Okay, I'll, I'll take your word on it because there are literally hundreds of different types of calibers. But regardless of the caliber, short of you know. Something like a a large, large caliber like thirty out six or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would if you put it up to the side of the body and pulled the trigger. There really wouldn't be that much noise. Well, you know that's one thing in the movies that they that they make they make them in the movies and it sounds to me in all the movies I've seen more like a shotgun blast. You know, and the thing that I noticed in firing the rifle is that as you're saying, it's a very different sound. You know. It's to me. It's a much higher pitched sound. It doesn't have this booming sound to it like you get in the movies. Right. And and it is. Yes, you're right. The pitch is very different than than what you're. And we what we did in the film was we actually recorded the sound of of that. You know, the actual rifle, not the one that actually killed the family, but that model. Right. You know, because we wanted to portray that accurately in the film with regards to what it would have really sounded like. I found that in an enclosed environment, I can't understand how in supposedly rapid-fire procession, because you have to remember, mother and father were each shot twice, okay? I can't imagine how, even even with it not as loud as what we see in the movies, someone should have still heard this. Somebody should have got the message in that house very quickly that something was up. Is this a lever action? This was a yeah. This was a lever action. Lever action probably held about six rounds in the tube. Seven. Seven. Okay. We well, have somebody. Uh, Which, I was going to say. He would have actually had to have reloaded the rifle at one point. Right. We we have somebody on the line that if it's who I think it might be, uh, they might be able to offer a little insight. Good evening, you're on Spooky South Coast with uh, Ryan Katzenbach and Alex Holzer. How are you? Hey, I'm doing pretty good. I don't think I'm the person oh, you're expecting. I was thinking it was John, our, our, yeah. our, our gunsmith friend. Yeah. Sorry. I'm... I should have known I'm the psychic. Forget it. I goofed. <laughs> Sorry. I'm sleeping. If you're a psychic, do you know who I am? No. That was a joke. And, yes, I am, and I'm intuitive, but 
I'm not focusing. No, I don't. Keep talking. Let me say. <laughs> hey, my question. I don't. I don't see why they they had to. Um, why there's a question of them waking up or not? I don't. I don't think they. I don't think they were shot when they were asleep. I think people did wake up. I mean, uh, Louise DeFeo, the wife, her body positioning was as she was rising up in the be- from the bed when she was shot, so that shows she was awake. Um, Allison, the little the little daughter, was shot point blank in the face, so she was looking right up at the gun, so she was awake. And the, the two boys, as I understand it, um, I think they were clutching the bed sheets. I think there was a report of that. Yes, Ryan correct. know all this. I was going to say, I was waiting for Ryan to jump in. Yeah, Ryan knows, trust me, he's got all that stuff. Yes, yes, that is true. Yeah, so I think it's really plausible that, that uh, everyone was awake, and when faced with a guy with a gun, they just did what he said, and, and uh, you know, I mean, what could they what could they do? The One of the boys had a, uh, uh, um, <laughs> he was in a wheelchair. He had an accident, and he was in a wheelchair, so, you know, it's not like he could get out of bed and run away. Uh, you know, from that himself. Wasn't so, it? A, uh, what was it, Ryan? A football? It was a football injury. Yeah, about a month it was an before. injury. Yeah, I believe it. I believe it happened late September, early October, if I recall. Yeah, so I don't think there's really a mystery about that. I think they were awake. I think the family was awake. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> Thank you, well, caller. The mystery. The, one of the great mysteries to me that I have never that I don't understand is I don't understand Don DeFeo, the eldest daughter, who shared an. She shared the attic floor with Butch. Her bedroom was on the opposite side of Butch's. Um, and what I don't understand, and I never have, is why in all the crime scene pictures you can clearly see that Don DeFeo had a, an extension right next to her bed. And if she was the last one to be killed, if she was the last one to die, and she was awake, why didn't she call 911? That is a question that persists for me. Well, uh, the other question, it leads to the other question of if they were out of their beds, uh, and, and this is something that I know that you posed uh, in the trailer for the film, and uh, if they were out of their beds and he did shoot Ron DeFeo Sr. and Butch did act alone, how did he get him back into the bed? That's the million-dollar question. Because <laughs> that's, a, that's a big guy. You know, I, I, I weigh kind of close to what he would weigh, and uh, I think a guy, I mean, Butch, Butch was not a, a, a big strapping guy, right? No, he was about 160, 165 pounds. So for him to have acted alone and been able to get his father up into the bed, which, uh, is it is it true, Moniz, you would probably know better than I would, but isn't it true that uh, when when a person is expired, it's actually harder to move their body because... They don't call it dead weight for nothing. Yeah, exactly. So. Right, right, exactly, exactly. Now, the, the thing about, okay, in the lab reports, the inventory of all of the items that were taken out of the DeFeo house that night. Uh, one of the interesting uh, things that was documented was item number 26 on the lab report was a swatch of carpet taken from the second floor hallway, which is one of the areas where we believe Big Roy DeFeo would have fallen and would have hit the, the carpet if the account that Butch DeFeo gave to Rick Osuna in 2000, which I want to note, our our documentary is based upon Rick Osuna's book, The Night the DeFeos Died. Uh, Rick spent about three years' worth of research and, uh, and gathered a lot of documents. And, and I think Rick was the first one to really bring a lot of these, these, the very questions we're talking about to the surface, you know, and to, to kind of raise the question, was it possible that, that multiple people were involved? And in 
looking at his book, I had a lot of other questions that I wanted to know. So I did a lot of outreach to a lot of other individuals, uh, you know, Alex being one of them. And in all, I believe right now I'm sitting on something like 17 or 18 interviews in the film. And a lot of these people are people that have never, have never talked before and we've never heard from before that have a lot of knowledge on the case. And the, 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 so I, I took Rick's research a lot, a lot further than what is in the book. And we've got some, some findings that, you know, really uh, add to Rick's findings and really support his work. And we've got a few conclusions that kind of take away from some of it as well. But the item that we've never seen a lab report on, that we've never been able to get access to, is this item number 26, which was a stain in the, the hallway carpet. They cut it out and removed it probably to take it and test it for the presence of blood. And the report is nowhere to be found, okay, as to what that was. Now, I have to believe that the case is very interesting in that, okay, they, they took this item, the report isn't available, but I think the prosecutor at trial, Gerard Sullivan, I don't even think Gerard Sullivan knew what direction he was going to take with the case when he made his opening arguments. Because in his opening arguments, in the transcript of the opening arguments, he tells the jury straight up, you know, that uh, Raul Gasseo, after 3 a.m., went to his father's room. He fired the first shot into his father. The first shot did not kill Ronald's father. So after he, um, after Ronald basically what he said, and I don't have the transcript right in front of me, but basically what he says is he says that Ronald got up and was shot a second time by his son, and his son placed him back into bed where he would be found by police. And I think that's a very interesting statement because after that point, it was never again in the trial addressed as to how he would have got him back into bed. And, you know, Ronald weighed about 270. And his son was about 160, 165. And as you said earlier, that's a lot of dead weight for a guy 165 pounds to move. So if that was a blood stain on the, on the carpet, okay, they made that report, I believe, disappear because it was easier to prosecute the sale alone, and they had an open and, and closed case. In fact, it's funny because I'm seeing... To me, I see some of the same things happening with the Ronnie Chase and, uh, you know, the publicist in L.A. I'm kind of seeing some similar things happening with that case, you know, out here right now. Well, it, it, it seems like, though, uh, for something that must have garnered a lot of national media attention at the time, uh, to have somebody uh, allegedly kill their entire family, uh, they needed to have a, a quick solution to it. They needed to have... Uh, a neat, tidy answer as fast as possible. And when you can actually get Butch DeFeo to confess, then it makes it a lot easier to give yourself a framework to work within. And and exactly. And, is that, forget too, and, to and don't forget, too, the media that, was partially to blame, not that you can ever stop that in, in the cycle of life, because that's just the way society works. But that's why a lot of paperwork started disappearing. And my father, who was the first person to publish, get this out there, if you will, um, all these things started happening, and then it made him look like an idiot at one point, which wasn't right, because he was there before most people were, you know, and he had no agenda. It wasn't like that. This is going back in time where there were no major, you know, things online and tools and all these things. I mean, this was hardcore research, fact-finding, interviewing, which is much like what Ryan is doing for this film. Is That's what he's been doing for years is that hardcore 
intelligent fact-find where you have to dig really deep. And then there has to be that kind of understanding that there are things missing. And how can that be? And people have a hard time believing that that happens. And Alex, you know, Alex raises a very very good point, you know, about her father. You know, when I first approached Alex, I wasn't sure if I wanted to talk to Alex, if Alex brought anything to the table regarding her father's work. Because, you know, I told Alex straight up when, when I talked to her the first time, you know, I'm not really a big, huge believer in the paranormal and in haunted houses and that kind of thing. And I, I've never really believed that that was what was going on in this particular case. And Yes, I did have a very tainted image of Hans, you know, going in. And and through everything that Alex told me about the research that he had done, I walked out with a whole different picture of, of Hans Holzer and who he was. And, you know, our work is kind of parallel in a lot of ways in that Hans viewed this as just a, a, a you know, one of his many, many, many cases. And he went in, he did his investigation, and he was done. And I'm seeing it kind of the same way as a film. You know, I'm I'm coming in to make this, and this is not a career for me, and this is not my, my whole life. You know, so that's a very good point that Alex makes. Well, we have a call here on the line, and I just want to stress, because uh, with the last call, we ended up losing Alex. Uh, when callers want to call in, and you can do so at one eight seven seven nine nine six fourteen twenty, 996 1420 or 508-996-0500, uh, after you've uh, made your point, if you could please hang up your phone, because if we try to hang you up, we're going to lose Alex again. And Alex, oh, I... I've been lost for years. Don't worry, honey. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, if it does happen, we'll just call you back immediately. We won't even bother saying hello. We'll just put you right through. That's okay. <laughs> All right. Good evening. You are on Spooky South Coast with Ryan Katzenbach and Alexandra Holzer. How are you? Hi, pretty good. Hey, Alexandra, um, I read your father's book, and he was convinced that Ronnie acted alone, wasn't he? Well, he was convinced he was possessed, and he felt, now don't forget, his job was not to do forensics. His job was not to be, um, you know, techie. It wasn't like that back then. And this is part of the problem that a lot of people today who are, who are kind of getting used to, like, the CSIs that are out there and all the stuff that's coming up today. He didn't have access to every single thing. He had access to more of people who were in the area at the time. He had access to more human relations versus just, you know, the facts of, you know, this happened, that happened, and also there were mistakes made from the police department, and he went off of what he knew and what was given to him that he was allowed to get. So here's, you know, my father, who is a noted investigator who works with the mediums. He's not a medium, who asks a bazillion questions, and given in the time and the circumstances and how it went down and the fact that this case was very quickly pushed through, I mean, this hit a town. The town was devastated. It turned this nice, quiet, waterfront town into this, this infamous murder story. Can you imagine? So all the politicians got involved. They told him to be quiet. Things started disappearing, and he was kind of used as the forefront of, okay, well, you know, he's crazy, whatever, and this is the conclusion that, you know, Ronnie's crazy. Well, my father felt through Ethel's work that he was possessed and he acted alone. Absolutely. You know, but his job wasn't to go into the forensics. That's not what was asked of him, and it wasn't what he proclaimed to be anything else other than who he was. That's the difference. He never said that he was anything more than who he was. And that's what's so frustrating, because so people just assume father, that, you know, he went in there as a, as a detective, as a cop, as all these different roles, and he was not. So you feel if your father had more... Uh, evidence like what Ryan is is well yes yeah, he was allowed back then this is a different day and age you know what surfaces today or five years ago was not 
then when he was there. It was not that you can't you can't even compare the two. Well, you they, know, it, yeah, they used to keep stories. You know, the the police department would do all they could to keep stories from leaking out to the media. Yeah, you know, to other people. There who was might no internet, told. you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was well, the other thing too to remember is that you know Amityville and, and Alex touched upon this. Amityville is a very elite community. You know, very well to do, very you know upper middle class community that you're dealing with here. So you know, the police department obviously wanted to reassure the people of this county and, and of this community that they were on the job and that they had their guy. They caught the, the perpetrator who committed this crime. And, and quickly. it was an open and, yeah. and closed case. Yeah. And I want to point, I, I mentioned Ryan Chasen a few minutes ago, and, I, and I'm going to draw a, a parallel modern day, contemporary, you know, to, to the defense story, is that look at the pressure that Beverly Hills Police Department is under and look at the fear that has swept through the community when this high-powered, L.A. publicist was murdered in her car while driving home. And I'm sure that here we are, we're being told today, right now, like, uh, granted, a little bit longer of a period of time has passed than what passed in the DeFeo case. But here you have the Beverly Hills Police Department now basically saying that the guy who shot himself in the hotel in West Hollywood was probably the perpetrator of the crime and probably did it. And guess what? Open and closed. The community can sigh a deep sigh of relief now. The the guy who did this is dead. He's not going to murder anybody else. Mm-hmm. And it's closed. But do we know the whole story? We only know the crust of what we're being told. And as I found in DeFeo, there is a lot more behind the story that hasn't been told. I mean, I think you guys saw in our trailer, in the very first trailer that we posted, Detective Gerard Gazaloff, I asked Gazaloff on camera, I said, was Bobby Kelsky, who was Butch DeFeo's best friend, was Bobby Kelsky ever considered a suspect in this case at all? Okay? And he immediately looks at the camera and says, shut this off. Mm-hmm. You know? So there was, there was a lot of details. There's a lot of stuff that I didn't know going into this. And I mean, and I feel like I've read every book out there on this subject, and I still continue to find new things that I did not know. Can I ask one follow-up question, please? Sure. Sure. Yeah, in regards to the father being shot a second time in the hallway, there was uh, three bullet holes in his body. There was two in his back and one in his front. And from the, from the book High Hopes, it says one of the shots from the back destroyed his heart. So if he was first shot in the back in bed with his heart being destroyed, how does he get up and get into the hallway? Do you know for a fact that that first shot was the one that hit his heart? Well, the trajectory doesn't line up when you do it from the one on his front to the back. That doesn't come near his heart. The trajectory doesn't line up if you're assuming that he's laying in bed. We don't know entirely for sure what position he was in at that moment. The heart's on the left side of the body, and the bullet hole was on the right side of the body on the front. I understand that, but do you also have the full autopsy? No, do you? I don't think anyone does. Don't you, don't I you do. I do have the it? full autopsy. I thought you had to be a family member to get that, they were saying. I have the full autopsy. Okay, so... The, you're saying the, the front, the shot in the front, got him in the heart. He came. I'm not. I'm right. not saying anything. I've turned it over to a forensic pathologist who is going to tell me in the next couple of weeks the exact trajectories and where the shooter was standing. Okay. So you think? But do you think in the hallway that he was shot in the front when he was in the hallway? I don't know that for sure. Okay. That's what I'm saying. We. 
we right now we have our theories as to what we think happened, and I'm and I assembled in the process of making this film. I have assembled a cast of roughly about 36 forensic people that are involved in this, ranging from psychologists to pathologists. Okay, from there's some blood spatter experts, there's some ballistics experts. I turned over every crime scene photo, every document, everything that I have amassed over to the forensic team, gave them an analysis. I gave them the official version of the story. I said, this is what they say happened. DeFeo walked from room to room. He first went to his parents' room. He shot them each twice. I, he crossed over. He shot his sister, Allison. He shot the boys. Then he went upstairs. He reloaded, and he shot his sister, Don. Okay, and I told him that's what happened. Now you take the evidence and you take the crime scene photos, you take the lab reports, you take the autopsies, you take everything that I've given you and you tell me if that is correct or not. And the initial report that came back from the forensic team three or four months into this said, no, this is not what happened. Okay, and then the questions began to come via email from different members of the team. What about this? What does this mean? What does that mean? Ryan, I gotta, I gotta cut you off. We have to take a break for the news. When we come back, okay. we'll definitely get right back into this. Stay tuned for more here on Spooky South Coast. The South Coast is burned. I see you shiver with anticipation. Well, we're waiting. Patience. Welcome back. Hour number two of Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz, broadcasting live on the WBSM airwaves as well as on Spooky TV. If you just go to SpookySouthCoast.com slash Spooky TV or just click the little uh, flash link up at the top of the page, you'll be connected with Spooky TV where you can jump into the chat room and you can share your thoughts during the show. And there's always interesting conversations going on in there sometimes regarding the show sometimes not and uh if you do go into the chat room i want to remind everybody that you can double click on your name that shows up that automatically gives you a name and if you double click on your name you can change your name to whatever you want and change your picture as well uh so that's uh, and and i know that you can register with it to keep it every time you go in and all that stuff i haven't gotten to that point so uh each week when you see spooky tim i try to have a different little icon next to it uh, at least for right now. But we were talking about the Amityville case uh, before we took the break, and we're going to get right back into that with filmmaker Ryan Kassenbach and Alexandra Holzer. Uh, you can visit the websites. 
grab that paper from you, Matt. If you want to check out more about Ryan's film and find out more about when it's going to be released, go to AmityvilleFilm.com. And for all things Alex Holzer, just go to HauntingHolzer.com. And, uh, of course, also you're both very active on Facebook, which is where I first found out about the film. Yeah. Yay for Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> it's like MySpace, only not as annoying. What, what, what is it, MySpace or something? We started mixing it up. It got so crazy. Yeah, Facebook and all yes. that kind of stuff. And yeah. what, what, what was the one that I was going to uh, start? The, I don't know. I, I had an anti-social network I was going to get going. <laughs> Ooh, lovely. It was for people that just don't want to talk to anybody else. I, I would be a member of that if you get that started. Uh, well, you can be one of the founders of it with me. <laughs> it's it's kind of funny because, like, the more uh, ingrained technology we get running this show between, you know, the webcam streaming and the Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff, the more I realize, gee, I'm the guy that doesn't really want to have to deal with people all the time. And, you know, now I can't go anywhere without everybody knowing what I do. <laughs> it shouldn't be too you know, hard, though. What do you do? Technology doing? is getting uh, is getting ridiculous. I I recently I had a BlackBerry and I dropped it and I broke the the face on the thing, and I went to go get a new phone, and they show me this this Evo thing, you know, and they're like, Ooh, this is the phone that you need, and if you're on Facebook and all this stuff. And after they got done explaining everything that this that this phone would do, <laughs> you know, it'll connect the TV, you can play videos on YouTube, you can do everything under the sun. And I asked the woman a question. I said, does it make calls? <laughs> Be- because that, you left that out. And if it makes calls, I'm sold. I- I'm an owner. But um, can I actually call somebody with it? And it's funny because when you called, you were the very first person who called me on this phone, and I honestly didn't even know how to answer the thing. <laughs> I'm like, what do I press to take this call? <laughs> Oh, that's like everybody wants to run out and get an iPhone for all the cool stuff it can do, but then they complain that they never get any of their calls. Oh, but see, I guess I, I just got the exactly. iPhone, and I love it. I think it's awesome. Well, you must I have one of the new ones. No, I, I got the G3. I didn't get the G4 or whatever, the 4G, whatever. Listen, I'm not techie. I've never said I've been techie, so I don't wear that title. That's but I got the 3G network or whatever. Well, we... I didn't want to go and spend the extra money for the 4G. I said, what's the difference? I just want to use the phone for emergencies i have four children you know so well whether whether you have an iphone or a blackberry or an evo or whether even if you I have two, tin, two tin cans with a string tying them together we have all the apps up on spooky tv for you to be able to follow yeah. along with the show wherever you are and we were talking uh you know before the break uh ryan about the uh, forensics team that you'd sent this information to and, and you were about to say you were mentioning how that they they'd come back if you want to and, reiterate what you were they, saying Yes, and they, they gave me some um, very, very sketchy, very preliminary findings, you know, and, and said, you know, we've, we've got a lot of questions. We're, we're going to have to do this in a series of different meetings and a series of, of different sit-downs and what have you, and we're going to have to, uh, you know, digest this very slowly because, as you realize, there's, there's, this is like trying to tell the Bible in a in a a small amount of time. And so we've begun this series. The, the, the process started in, we were tracking all year long. One of the things that you'll find is a lot of people have criticized me through the years for the fact that the film has taken so long. And our take on it is that we want it done right. We want to be correct in everything that we say, you know, and if that takes extra time to, to back it up and to verify these facts, we're going to take that time until I'm sure that we've got it right. And 
through the beginning of the year, through the beginning of 2010, it looked like we were going to be ready to go sometime in November with a, a premiere date for the film. And as we got closer, I had always wanted to hire a forensic, a couple of forensic experts to you know, take a look at the case and really analyze it. And I wanted, I wanted to analyze the psychology behind the case because I think there's some very interesting psychology going on in the crime scene photos when, when you review those, and I'll, I'll get into that in a second if you want to hear about that. But the, the, the forensic team, so I, I hired the, the, the team leader, you know, based on his credentials and, and brought, brought him into the scene, and then he brought somebody else, and then he brought somebody else, and somebody else brought somebody else, and pretty soon we've built this really great team, and, you know, pretty much kind of covering every aspect of forensic science. You know, pathology, psychology, ballistics, uh, blood spatter, all of those kinds of things. And I began to realize in the summer as this was going on that there was no way we were going to be ready by the fall of the year. So they came back and they said, we'll be ready to shoot our segment in November, you know, and, and we'll be done with that. Well, as we got closer to November, the questions and the documents and all of the things that they were analyzing, we were still going through all of those. So we decided to move it to the 1st of January for the, for the filming date. And I would say that we are definitely on the mark. We're going to make that filming date. And I am dying. You have to understand, I have not heard myself what their conclusions are. And I told them, I said, if you feel that DeFeo did this by himself, Tell me that, and that's going to air. That's going to be part of the film. If you think he had accomplices, tell me about that. Tell me whatever you think happened. What I'm trying to present at the end of the day is the most comprehensive picture of what likely transpired in the DeFeo house. And, I, and in saying that, I will also say that I do believe that there are elements of the story that we will probably never know, that, that there's no one that knows. All we can do is piece together the facts as best as possible. Well, why don't we take a step back here and, and go before the murders actually took place. And you mentioned psychology. Let's talk a little bit about the DeFeo family and what that dynamic was in that family because there's rampant speculation about, uh, about not only it not being uh, a happy home, but also there being some... Uh, shady dealings uh, in the underworld with the family as well. Well, the, the family, yes, there are some, there are some very, um, we obtained some interesting things. There's a lot of speculation over Mike Briganti. Now, Mike Briganti was Louise DeFeo's uh, father, and he owned a Buick dealership on Coney Island Avenue. And Rick Osuna was one of the first ones in his book to assert that the mob uh, had their fingers in this organization, and that the, the organization was a front for mob activity, and that the dealership did things on a low level, like uh, laundering money and disposing of weapons and, and such, you know. And, you know, that stuff is very, very hard to document and very, very hard to prove. We went and we found quite a few files and quite a few documents that, that clearly connect the Briganti organization to the mob. And, you know, John Christopher Fine wrote a book. He was a, a Brooklyn, he was a part of the racket squad that was, that was taking a heavy look at the mob and was very focused on mob activities in the 70s. And I tried to reach out to John Christopher Fine to get him to interview for the film, and he declined. Rick Osuna, when he wrote his book, had talked to uh, Fine, 
and Fine basically said, I won't talk about the Briganti organization. I will not comment on any of the players involved. And we clearly got the idea that there might have been some kind of uh, witness protection program or something, you know, going on. But Fine wrote a book called The Racket Squad, you know, after he left The Racket Squad. And in that book, he talked about a Brooklyn Buick dealership that was connected with the mob. And you have to just assume that that, that was probably Briganti at that point. Mm-hmm. And so they were very well connected to the, to the family. I, I believe we'll prove that beyond a shadow of a doubt in the film. You know, and Big Ronnie DeFeo worked for his father-in-law at the dealership. And the job was basically a gratuity from Mike Briganti. And Big Ronnie DeFeo... You know, there's a lot of endless speculation over whether or not he was abusive to his family. And when you examine that and when you look at that, you have to go back and you have to read a lot of the trial transcripts. And in those trial transcripts, Mike Brigetti Jr., which was, which was Louise's uh, brother, okay, uh, she, or he actually testified at trial that at one point uh, when Butch DeFeo was around two years old that there was a fight and he picked up uh, 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 Butch and threw his toddler son across the room. There were also other instances of domestic violence that were documented in those transcripts. So I think the family, I think it was a very tumultuous situation in that house. And then we get the stories that Big Ronnie DeFeo was actually, he believed that he talked and conversed openly with St. Joseph and with God. And... Hmm. I found numerous family, or numerous, not family members, but numerous friends, people who knew the DeFeos very well, and they each verified this, you know, and they each said that, yes, this man believed that he could predict things, he believed that he could see into the future, he could predict the deaths of people. Uh, he had called his brother-in-law, I believe it was his brother-in-law, at one point, and told him that he had this psychic vision that... Uh, Brooklyn and all of the south shore of Long Island was going to get hit with a tsunami. And he told him, you have to evacuate, you have to get out of here, uh, blah, blah, blah. And, of course, needless to say, the tsunami never came. You know, So you have this portrait in our film. You have this portrait of, of Big Ronnie, who is you know, abusive to his family. At the same time, he's kind of a religious fanatic, you know, and as testified by, by various friends and people who knew the family very well, you know. And so you kind of really get this clear portrait that this house was far from normal. You know, in the quote of one of, my, uh, one of the jurors who was one of the interviewees in the film, she said on camera, she said, quote, I never knew the definition of dysfunctional, okay, until I sat through that trial. Well, I have a question for you, and, and, and I'm not sure what the answer will be or if it's even relevant, but it's something that I want to ask here. You, you talk about Big Ronnie going through these experiences to, to speak to God, speak to St. Joseph, to, mm-hmm. to have this strange persona. And I know that the family lived in the house for, what, nine years at the time of the murders? It was actually right, Mike, Mike Briganti bought on the house in 1965. Yes. yes. Were, and you might not know the answer to this, but were these uh, – abnormalities with his personality, did they exist prior to moving into 112 Ocean Avenue? To my knowledge, based on what I've been told, yes, but they escalated as the years went by. And he was becoming much more, uh, by all accounts, 
much more delusional as time was going on. So that could be more of just the, if there was an illness or something that was ramping up more so than just any kind of control that the property might have. Right. That, see, what, I, what we always saw, Rick and I have, had talked about the great links at one point, and based on the things that we've heard, we, we're kind of of the mindset that the guy was bipolar or manic depressive or something along those lines, and that is why, you know, it basically kind of almost a chemical imbalance. I mm-hmm. think today, I think if, if Ronald DeFeo were alive today and his family were witnessing these kinds of things, I think they would simply take him to a doctor or a psychologist or somebody who would simply just put him on some meds, you know, and it would have probably ended the, the issue at that point. But, you know, you always have to go back when you do a, a period film like this. You know, we think today it's very easy for us to think in the context of today, you know, and you have to go back and you have to think in the context of the time that all of this was taken, you know, taking place. You can't just say, well, give the guy some Zoloft and he'll be fine in 1974 because we didn't know what we know about the brain and depression and all of those things that we know today. Well, Alex, I'll ask you this question because I know that your your father is often credited as being the, uh, I don't want to use the word inspiration, but... Uh, he was kind of his his work and his writings were some of the influence in the script for Amityville too. Yeah, his book was used for the second one. And yeah. a, a lot of that, of course, centers around the relationship of a DeFeo-like family. Mm-hmm. Um, what were his thoughts on that family? I mean, you mentioned possession uh, in terms of Butch DeFeo, but mm-hmm. what, what were his thoughts on the family unit as a whole? He, oh, he thought they were nuts. He didn't want he didn't want to be around any of it, you know. When he when he interviewed DeFeo, he wanted to get as far away from him as possible. He came home and, you know, the way he kind of talked about it with me was just, you know, there was not much to talk about. Um, it was very negative. He felt very it was like it brought him down. You know, I mean he, he saw this guy in prison and was saying things that he definitely, you know, had, you know, his impression of him. And, you know, he kind of left it there. He didn't want to take it with him. You know, it was a very negative environment. And part of what, you know, I mean, there's there's dysfunction everywhere. Our own family growing up was dysfunctional. And my father couldn't recognize the dysfunction in our own family. So I don't think he would have recognized it with DeFeo and what was going on prior to leading up to the murders because, you know, when when you're kind of living in a world where you think everything should be okay and you're seeking, you know, a quest for truth beyond, which is really was his job and his calling, you know, it's hard to kind of look at the fact that, you know, things are happening and they're bad. And where I kind of come into it and where he kind of came from was negative breeds negativity. And the one thing that I kind of was talking to Ryan about in the film was that, when you have already a preset negative persona and they go into a place that has a negative energy, right, that's where the paranormal comes in as far as I'm concerned. Um, it kind of just adds fuel to that fire. So if you already have this, this crazy, out-of-control family, a lot of negative, you know, brouhaha Italian energy going on and just craziness, and these kids are caught in the middle, and the mother isn't going to do anything to help because the father's overbearing. We've read these stories a hundred times before. They end up in suicide, murder, jail time, you name it. And they move into this house with this property that already has problems, you know, going back into the late 1800s. 
you know, as far as I'm concerned, as far as the paranormal comes into play, there's a lot of negative energy that's festering. And that's kind of where he was coming from. And he, he didn't want to be around DeFeo. It wasn't like it was a, a picnic for him to go and interview this guy. Mm-hmm. This guy was pretty rotten to my father, which I found out recently, which really hurt me because I'm his daughter and I get defensive, obviously, with my father. But he, he put up with him. He was rotten to my father. He would turn around and say things behind his back when my father was actually trying to help him. Well, as convoluted you know, as it sounds, you know. To interject, DeFeo was quite rotten to his own grandfather, for that matter. You know, yeah. uh, Mike Briganti, pretty much, I mean, this was pretty much something that, that obviously he lost his daughter and he lost all of his grandchildren in, in one swoop, you know, because they only had uh, two kids, and uh, Mike Jr. never married and never had kids of his own. So, Louise, this was his family. And he was haunted for the rest of his life by, by what happened in that house. And he would write these letters to Butch, and he would ask Butch, please, for the sake of my own peace of mind, what happened that night? I need to hear the truth. And DeFeo, I have all of these letters that he wrote to his grandfather, uh, you know, all the way through the 1970s, and he was horrid to his grandfather. I mean, he wrote him these mocking, nasty letters, and he would tell him that, that there were multiple people involved. And then he would write another letter, and he would say that he did it by himself. And then he would write another letter, and he would say that you'll never know what the truth is. And, and I think that that uh, – so what Alex is saying about what he did to, his, to, to her father, yeah. you know, he did that to his own grandfather as well. He's a sick human being. I don't care. It's like it's almost like, you know, whether he acted alone or whether he had all these accomplices and it went wrong and he was caught in the middle and he was sort of innocent but not really, he's sick. He, he definitely, if his father, you know, had issues mentally, we know that's genetic. We know that today. So these are, these are things that now you can kind of see a pattern forming. But my father certainly did not want to be around that. And, of course, he knew things were off with him, you know, but he, he didn't want to bring that home. You know, that's, that's how he was with every case. You know, it was not really something that we kind of, you know, especially the negative ones, it was, it was pretty horrible. He was, it really affected him. It, he wanted to finish it and get away from it, and a lot of people don't know that. I, I have a little saying that I use sometimes, and that's that dysfunction is a family's function. You know, that's the, it's supposed to be the place where everybody can be a little bit crazy, and, and they're the ones that are understand and accept you uh, no matter what happens. But it seems like in this case it was something just rotten at the core. Uh, and, you know, there's speculation, too, Ryan, that uh, that Dawn, the oldest sister, that she was involved uh, with this as well. So now if that is true, then you have not only one child that would want to uh, consider patricide, but you all you have two. So what Absolutely. does that tell you about the family dynamic? Absolutely. You know, um, one of the one of the things that we discovered in the course of this is that, you know, Don DeFeo had a boyfriend, and his boy the boyfriend's name was was Billy, and uh, she Billy had gone to Florida or was in the process of going to Florida. I've I've heard of recent some conflicting things that he was actually still in New York and heading for Florida. We had always believed that he was already in Florida, but so what the exact truth is there, I, I'm not entirely for sure. But she had reportedly she wanted to leave and go to Florida with him, and they had plans to get married, to live together, whatever, once they got to Florida. And she wanted out of the house so badly that she couldn't stand it. And at one point, she actually staged her own kidnapping. And 
This came from the files of the private investigator from Herman Race, who was the uh, independent investigator hired by Weber later on during trial when he was defending the fam. And in that file, it says that, that Mike Briganti, the grandfather, got a phone call, and the phone call stated that his, that his granddaughter had been kidnapped, and that if he didn't pay the sum of $5,000, she would be killed. So Herman Race went and personally handled this, and he told Mike when they got to the pier to the designated rendezvous point, he said, you wait in the car, I'm going to go, I'm going to go take care of this. So he goes out, he finds two guys at the end of the pier, he confronts them, he says, they say something to the effect of him, are you Mr. Briganti? He says, no, but I have something from Mr. Briganti, and a scuffle ensues. And what, in, what Herman ends up doing is he ends up basically taking these two guys down to the, to the you know, wood deck of the dock, puts him basically at gunpoint and says, you either tell me where Don is at or, or else you're going to get it. And at that point, he realizes he's dealing with two basically 18-year-old boys. And they confessed to him that they had been put up to this by Don, that Don had staged her own kidnapping in an attempt to get $5,000 out of the grandfather, okay, and that this happened not too long before the murders. Now, Tim, I have to ask you, what does, a, what does an 18-year-old girl Okay, what would drive her to stage something like this? Okay, and of course, by the way, they told uh, the, the, they told Herman where Don was at. They drove down the street to the designated point, and there she was standing there. And Herman commented and noted that the grandfather was absolutely destroyed by the fact that his granddaughter had tried to, to you know, squeeze him for five thousand dollars, and. So you have to ask yourself, what would drive an 18-year-old girl to, that, to the point of staging her own kidnapping and doing something like this? And obviously my assertion is that things were so bad in the house that she wanted out that badly that she was willing to do whatever it took. Well, I wonder why Briganti didn't see that as a, as a really big cry for help or maybe it's just the, you know, the, the, the attitude of the family, the attitude of the of the culture to to, well, to, to know, be more that, hurt than to be concerned. That's the thing that, that we talk about in the film. You know, it, to me, it's inconceivable, okay, that Briganti did not know what was going on, okay, that Briganti had to have known that his daughter was the, the victim of domestic violence. That there, I mean, these, it, there's one point in the file where it talks about uh, witnesses at the dealership saw uh, – Butch and uh, Big Ronnie had gotten into a fight at the dealership, okay? And Butch got in his car and was in the process of leaving. And as he was leaving, Big Ronnie came around the corner and threw a brick through Butch's windshield at him. So clearly, people knew that there was, that there was, this was a very tumultuous situation that was going on, you know? And Hal Briganti could have not known, I, it's inconceivable to me, as I said, but I think, more than anything, I think that Briganti just, on the wishes of his daughter, and consistent with the, you know, the Italian uh, family, you know, I think that he just kind of put his head in the sand and, and honored his daughter's wishes because of how much he loved her. And if she said, Dad, don't intervene, don't get involved, I think that's probably what he, what he did or didn't do. I agree. Or, or it could even be a case, I mean, I don't know anything about the Briganti family, but it could also be a case of, you know, that was how they did things, too. Well, the Brigantes, the interesting part about the Brigantes, again, from some people who knew them, you know, very well, the Brigantes were these, they were very, 
very upstanding, very noble people, despite their, their connection to the, the organization, so to speak. You know, and Mike Briganti was this very loving man, and him and Angela had a great marriage, you know, and, uh, and this was definitely not anything that, that went on in their household, okay. you know. So it, it's inconceivable to me as to why Mike wouldn't have intervened, as to why Mike wouldn't have done something about this, you know. Yeah. But Mike also knew right up around the point of the murders, Mike had also learned that Big Roy DeFeo had been stealing a large amount of money from the dealership and from the mob operation. So I think that where we were at in 1974 with all of this happening, I think that this family was, was really at a flashpoint. You know, something was going to happen. You know, it, whether, it was, whether it was the murders, as we know, that, that, that did transpire and did happen, or whether something else would have happened, it was, it was frankly a matter of time. Well, you mentioned the, the theft of, of uh, large sums of money from the dealership and subsequently uh, allegedly from the mafia as well. And that brings in the other one of the other theories about this is that this was a mafia hit on the family and that Butch was told to take the fall for it. Well, that is, that is Tim, an angle that is looked upon in the film. In fact, I told, you know, as, as the forensic team, as I told you, I didn't want to taint them with any um, type of, you know, predictions or, or my, my feelings on the case. I wanted them to go into it with a blank mind and, and be completely objective. As we got to talking further about the case, that became a question of theirs. You know, is, is it possible? So that caused me to have to make some phone calls and do some digging, and I got some pretty conclusive um, statements from some related parties that it was definitely not a mob hit and that this is definitely not, and I, I got a lot of kind of, and I can't obviously say what my source is or how, but I got a lot of inside um, reconnaissance information into the way that a mob hit would work, and this was definitely not a mob hit. Okay. You know, it's important to understand, the mob is very um, adamant that in a hit, when a hit is conducted, that no innocent person is killed. They consider that a cardinal sin. So if Big Ronnie was a problem, if Big Ronnie was someone that they needed to deal with, Big Ronnie would have been very discreetly and very quietly dealt with. And he would have not, absolutely not, he would have not been murdered in his home with his family as witnesses. It would not have happened, you know. So the angle of the mob hit is interesting, but I don't think it really plays a, a part in this particular case. I think that, quite frankly, the tragedy that happened, and it was a, a hor you know, horrifying tragedy that befell those innocent kids, you know, I think that probably something would have happened with Big Ronnie alone down the road later on had this not happened. Well, one of the things that we've talked about here in the past, and we, we had Jackie Barrett on the show, who, as you know, is uh, now working very closely with Butch DeFeo. Right. right. And she's a friend of ours. We know her. And, and <laughs> yes. We, I mean, hello. We, and she mentioned uh, on the program, she mentioned the, uh, the idea that prior to the DeFeos owning that home, that somebody had lived in that home that had practiced satanic worship. And is it... Possible now, Ryan. I'm asking you this not from a paranormal perspective, but more from that psychological perspective. Is it possible that perhaps Butch thought that he was under the influence of something 
in that home when he con- committed these murders. I'm not saying, do you believe that he was under the influence, but do you believe that he believed he may have been under such influence? Yeah, I, I understand the question completely, you know, and, and you know, I don't think so. I, I don't believe that, that he ever gave that any thought. I don't believe that he ever thought that, that, you know, that there was anything abnormal about his house or any of the prior people who had lived there. You know, because one of the things I think Rich fell back on as an alibi or, you know, a, a kind of a preconceived story that he had cooked up in his mind as a way of covering this, I, excuse me, I think he relied more upon the drug angle than anything else, okay, because he, I believe I had read and I was told by somebody later that he had made the statement that he shot up heroin that day because he was hoping that if they give him any type of blood test or anything along those lines, that this heroin would show up in his system and that he would somehow not be responsible for the murder of the family because he was under the influence at the time. I think more than anything that was his fallback story. And, and by the way, we addressed that in the film, and I really do not believe, nor does a lot of the people that I interviewed, that DeSeo was in any way a hardcore user of drugs. I think that that's just something that, that came up later on when people speculated why he did it. You know, uh, the, the lead detective actually asked me, he said, uh, or I asked him, I said, did you see any evidence of drugs? And he said, no, we made Butch show his arms to us, and there were no track marks anywhere on his arms. So we can kind of rule heroin out, you know, as being a, a, a factor in it as well, I think. Bear in mind, heroin can also be snorted, not just injected. True. That is true too. That is true yeah. too. But it also, if it, if he did set himself up in this regard so that it would, it it would show up in the system, it does show even more premeditation uh, to commit this crime. Which right. I, I think the, uh, you know, the 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 possession angle. I think a lot of that stuff. It may have become convenient for Butch later on because of you know Weber alleg- uh, alleges that he cooked up the whole Amityville horror story. Uh, with uh, the Lutzes and that he got Jay Anson to play along and that basically, you know, they concocted this story for money and that also becomes a convenient out for Butch as well. I agree. And, I, and I'll note too that I think that Butch DeFeo will say anything that Butch DeFeo needs to say at that moment to assert whatever position it is that he wants to get across mm-hmm. at that moment. You know, and I... I so yes, I completely, I completely agree with that. But the thing is, one thing that you'll note in our film when you see it is that, you know, we're probably more sympathetic to DeFeo than probably anybody ever has been in the past. You know, and I really do believe that he was this kind of, you know, screwed up kid. You know, that that had a very bad uh, lifestyle at home. You know, and I think his father. I think his father heaped on cars and money and boats because I think his own father felt guilty about the things that he did, you know. And so you have this kid that, that on one token is told by his father, you know, you're nothing without me, you're garbage, you'll never amount to anything, you know. And then on the other token, he's got all this cash and he kind of becomes this, this loudmouth braggart and, and all that to kind of hide his own insecurities. I think that the defense that we see today the one that is that is incarcerated, I think he's a completely different affair than that kid. You know, I think he is a product of the prison system, of being incarcerated for 30 years, 
So I think that anything that he says today is very suspect. Well, in in discussing the the paranormal aspect and the idea of the Amityville horror and the fact that this house had some sort of influence over the family, uh, and Alex, I'm sure you can probably uh, comment on this, the idea that if enough people go to a place and enough people are projecting the idea of it being haunted, whether it is or it isn't, there's going to be some sort of energy that results from that. Yeah, well, but the thing is, again, my father said the house wasn't haunted. The property had problems. Mm -hmm. Okay, there was a farmhouse on there that had burnt down. There was a whole history. He went after prior to. He didn't just go in there and say, oh, okay, you know, this had now it's haunted. He didn't do any of that, and, you know, the frustrating thing is, again, the assumptions that it was a haunting. It wasn't a haunting. It wasn't haunted. The only thing paranormal about it was the suggestion that perhaps he was under the influence of a negative spirit. And today, as we know, in the paranormal field, demons seem to be growing left and right. I don't know. But, again, society, I think, is a bit more crueler, you know, today because I think things are just a lot harder you have a lot more nastiness out there, is just my opinion. But it does breed. You are a product of your environment physically, yes, socially, yes. But there is an element that we can't fully explain, which is the unexplainable, the supernatural. And I feel that if there are leftover energies that are not positive, you can be influenced, especially as like how Ryan's trying to explain that there's a psychology here that goes back and back to the parents of the parents that there's something that was brewing, and to go into an environment that's had problems before, maybe not murder, but things happening, always happening, and they're not good happenings, you know, um, that it was just kind of adding to it. Like, like I said, fuel to the fire. That, you know, that is something that many people believe in, and that they, when they walk into a place and they say, you know what, I don't feel right here, something's not, it's off. Or they walk into another place and say, oh, my God, what a warm feeling I have being here in your home, you know. It, it's something that goes into who we are as people and that we use our senses, and it is not about facts or findings. It has to do with feelings and it has to do with emotions and part of being a human being. And that that's the part that's the hardest to always try to, I wouldn't say prove, but explain that there's, there's a mix here. And Amityville Horror, that whole, there's, a, there's a mix. There's facts, there's... Um, something else going on, a higher level that has to be harder to try to explain to people because you can't see it, you know, and I think it's, it's the balance of two things exploding, and that's why Ryan's film is just so amazing on, on the respect that he goes and he digs for these, you know, backgrounds to kind of put together what could have been and what more than likely you know, a psychologist would say absolutely because this is this, that's negative too. The behavior of the DeFeo family—that's negative behavior. Mm -hmm. So just because it's, it's it's its own demon, do you know what I'm saying? It comes in a different form, but that's not any better than if the the a black cloaked figure was lurking in the corner or the red room, quote unquote. You know, I, I, I don't. Think, I think that evil. You know, that we we always associate evil. I think with the devil. You know, with an entity, with a haunting in a house, with a poltergeist, with whatever. You know, and I think we forget that as humans, we're very capable of a, of a very real human evil in our own ill wills towards each other, in our own, you know, greed, in our own insecurities, and in all of those things. So, so evil to, to you know, to, 
jump in there, Alex. You know, I, I think that evil can be can be man-made or it can be of another of another plateau. And I think a lot was going. I, my honest opinion, I think the property had issues. I think we ha, you can be a walking ghost in, in a forest. I'm sorry, but if I died in the middle of the woods and I didn't like where I was and I was confused and I'm just lingering and you're not coming to ghost bust my hiney, I guess I'll be stuck between the trees. Okay, but I'm still there. It, it's kind of just part of the field itself and the science to it and the understanding that we occupy space and time and where there's layers to it. It's not black and white there's gray you know and you know the whole you know I'm, I'm just like a firm believer that there's a lot of things going on in that area and the town of amityville if you look into the cemetery there's a lot of bad people that live there you know and a lot of things that happen and i just think there are places in life that just are bad and that's just the way it is and Ryan is trying to put a positive on this because there was so much tragedy that came out of it that, you know, we're just trying to get past and say, well, there's a lot of things that a lot of people don't know. And those those evils, I mean, I feel are partially the environment, partially the people, partially things that happened prior to. And, and we know that, you know, even if the scar, even there's scars by negative energy. You know, yeah. it, it definitely leaves an imprint on a location. And the negative energy from what happened to the DeFeo family could have been enough to leave an imprint for whoever occupied the home next. And, you know, was some of that sensationalized or was some of that uh, put over the top for, you know, sales purposes and money-making? Right. Sure, but it's entirely plausible that what went on there could have had some sort of lingering effect, not just necessarily in a paranormal sense, right. uh, a but paranormal also in the welcome mat. Well, but not right. only just that, but also in the <laughs> psyche of the next people that walk into there. Well, I mean, come on. If a realtor, it's like you know, if a realtor disclosed to you, oh, this you know, you've got the per like that house is amazingly gorgeous and the property, and you've got the 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 bay. You know, if somebody said, oh, by the way, you know, a family of you know X amount died here, but here it's you know, I mean, you would not buy it. And if you did, you just you're you're crazy because then you just care about the money and it doesn't bother you. Well, when the lights go out at night, I would like to know as I sit there with my camera and film you how you feel now because that that is just something that just I always think that when we went house hunting, I wondered is there somebody buried under here because I'd never know. I swear to God, that's the product of being a holder. You know, these are the things that go through your mind. <laughs> sure. But happiest day, house hunting, not for me. But, you know, I think of dead bodies. So, I don't know. Well, Ryan, I'll say this. The hallmark of any good documentary film is that it generates some controversy before it's even released. <laughs> I, I agree. Man. We, we don't seem to have uh, come upon any shortage of that controversy, you know. And uh, I can... I, I just and the problem is, is you know, I want to talk about the case, and I want to talk about the the documents, and I want to talk about all of the things that that we found. But I'm kind of at a disadvantage right now because I can't do that because there's so much there's so much meat in this film, you know, in this piece that I don't want to I don't want to give it away before it comes out, you know. And some of the people that we talked to, you know, that we interviewed on camera are amazing, you know, in in really digging in there and really finding out about who these people were, you know, what what they were about, you know, their their house. You know, I, I did a lot of digging into the history of the house itself, you know, when it was built, who built it, tracked down, you know, as many people as I could that could tell me about that. 
And, you know, it's a, it's a fascinating story. And I know, as I said earlier, you know, I'm still on a daily basis learning things that, that I've never heard before that I didn't know. Well, and I'm afraid to say this name because if I do, I may have to pay her. But uh, Tracy DeFeo is, <laughs> is somebody who's <laughs> taken exception with the work that, uh, that you've done. And, I, you know, I can't keep track of which side she's on anymore. Like, I don't really know who she's stumping for and who she's against anymore. I just know that you're, you're one of the people that are in her crosshairs. Yeah, she, she hates my living guts, and I, <laughs> I don't really care, frankly. Um, I think my own personal opinion of her is that she's just a uh, person who married DeFeo, and uh, I realize I have to keep this clean. Uh, she, she married DeFeo. Uh, to get her 15 minutes worth of fame, and she got her 15 minutes worth of fame, and DeFeo has now, as I told her was going to happen in the email, uh, she sent me some nasty email a couple years ago, and I wrote her back an email, and I said, I want you to put this on your calendar, and I want you to mark that I said these words on this date. When DeFeo runs out of his use and his tolerance of you, okay, he will get rid of you, okay, and when he gets rid of you and he sues you for divorce, he will sue you, alleging that you stole his documents, alleging all of, the, all of this insanity. I know. I've been to court with DeFeo two times, you know, and I've also seen all of the lawsuits that he's filed against anybody through the years that has tried to help him. It's just a cookie-cutter thing that he does, you know, and so I don't know if you know this or not, Tim, but in August he filed for divorce against Tracy. Oh, really? Just just like I said he would, you know. So as far as whose side she's on these days, I I don't imagine it to probably be Butch's side. Um, probably not anymore, no. <laughs> but, yeah, it, it, there, there is just there's that kind of person. You know what I'm talking about. The, oh, yeah. You know, that, oh, yeah. there's a reason why they put out those magazines and they leave them, uh, you know, uh, near the Lonely Hearts clubs that have all the pictures of the people in prison who are looking for a pen pal. Exactly, and that right there, that could be a that could almost be a psychological study in and of itself. That that's almost another documentary: women who marry convicted murderers. You know, it's that's a reality a show, honey. Produce, but, uh, but but it would definitely be an interesting case study in in who does that and who who marries them and takes their kids into the facility. You know, to meet this man, and and what are you thinking? I mean, do you do you actually see this guy as being a potential father figure to your children? I mean, how could you not think about what he what it's alleged that he did to his own siblings? I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen. I imagine most people haven't the crime scene photos, the really horrifying crime scene photos that I've got. You know. And, I mean, the, the, the close-up picture of the wound to Allison DeFeo's face, I mean, it is horrifying. How could anyone drag their kids into a visiting room knowing that this man is associated or, or did, committed this crime, shooting his 13-year-old sister, Allie, who was absolutely a gorgeous child, you know, shot her point-blank range in the face. You can see the stippling all over her face, which tells you that the barrel of the gun had to be practically against her cheek. You know, I, I, I'll never understand that psychology. Sick. Well, and, of course, you had to go and mention that it would make a good reality show, and all of right. a sudden right. it'll pop up on you know, right. Discovery Channel or a I want that. That was my idea. Make, make sure you get your cut. 
That's right. Exactly. Who wants exactly. to marry a mass murderer? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Doing like a game show format. In, instead of kind of, instead of handing you a rose if he picks you, he hands you a little hatchet. Exactly. <laughs> you know, or nail file. I, the question I have, you know, is I know that she was, you know, always talking about training to get him out of prison, and that he was going to walk free one of these days, and and blah blah blah. And I have to, I would just like to ask her face to face, Tracy, would you and your kids, would you want to sleep? Could you could you actually sleep at night in a house? with this man in this house with you knowing what happened 36 years ago? I mean, I, I, would, I would love to just ask that question face-to-face, -face, you know, and, and to see the reaction, because I don't understand how anybody could do that. Well, that we're just about out of time now, so I guess we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> but I'm sure you'll get your chance someday to to, to speak speak to her face to face. It's just uh, oh oh god, I there might be lot. lawyers present on both sides when it happens. <laughs> All right, so Ryan, you definitely got to keep us up to date with when the film is going to be released. We'll have you back to talk about it when it actually comes out. Uh, are Absolutely. you going to are you going to put it in theaters first? Is it going to be ha having a run in some theaters, or is it going to go straight to video? Or well, we're we're still going around and around over that, and we've we've had a series of negotiations uh, with a network with actually multiple networks, and it's all kind of up in the air as to what we're going to do. And I can't tell you the piece has pretty much expanded to six hours with the with the forensic segment. Right. So in terms of theatrical release, that's a pretty unruly film to try and put into theaters, you know. And they've said, well, could you cut it? Could you shorten it? And I'm against shortening it just because, you know, the info floats so well that, to, you know, where do you begin to cut out detail? Especially when it all builds up to the final hour, you know, to really tell the truth behind what happened. You know, so I, I'm not sure yet at this point. The one thing I can I can definitely say is that one way or the other the piece will make it out onto a box set. That is a is an absolute certainty. Excellent. Well please keep us up to date. Thank you for making this film and telling the true story behind the Amityville murders. It's called Shattered Hopes, the true story of the Amityville murders. It's Amityvillefilm.com and thank you Alex for carrying on your father's work. Uh, hauntingholzer.com is your website, right? Uh, well, but yeah, it's old, but it's fine. People can find me. I, you know me, so it's fine. Thank yeah. you. Well, you can find her everywhere. She's very easy I'm to find. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Tim. Thank you very much for the opportunity to have us on and uh, to talk about it. And any time anytime that you want to chat about Amityville and the dysfunction associated with it, give me a ring. Absolutely. Bye, everybody. Thanks. Have a good Bye, night, Alex. and happy holidays Bye, to you both. Thank you. Bye-bye. All, right, well. All right, that'll do it for this week's episode of Spooky South Coast. We'll be back next week to talk more about the paranormal, and we'll be here each and every Saturday night from 10 to midnight. And we're online. SpookySouthCoast.com is the place to find all the archive shows. Uh, you can find the links to our video podcasts there. And every, every video that we do now on Spooky TV is automatically made on demand immediately after the show. So if you miss any part of it, you can just go to Ustream, search for Spooky South Coast, and you can find all of our videos and get them right away. So uh, until next week, for Matt Costa, for Matt Moniz, I'm Tim Weisberg. We want you all to stay spooktacular.